This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the ERRR podcast was brought to you by John Cat Educational and this month we're highlighting Sam Strickland's new book, They Don't Behave For Me, 50 Classroom Behaviour Scenarios to Support Teachers. They Don't Behave For Me supports teachers with some key behavioural scenarios, ranging from classroom disruption and rudeness to bullying, fights, and even a lack of an overall behavioural strategy at a school. In the book, Sam Strickland draws on his own experience to illustrate 50 common situations that he has had to resolve, seek support with, or offer advice on, and which most teachers will face at some point as they progress through their career into middle and senior leadership. Each scenario is broken down into an outline of the issue, a what to do in the immediate now, and a follow-up set of next steps. With the special code ERRR30, you can get 30% off all books via the John Cat website. That includes They Don't Behave For Me, as well as my two books, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. Again, that code for 30% off is ERRR30 on the John Cat website or in Australia via the Woods Lane website. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based education project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bring the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests of the ERRR podcast, to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they're engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 80 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode we're speaking with Peps McRae. Peps is an award-winning teacher educator, designer and author. He is Dean of Learning Design at Ambition Institute, author of the High Impact Teaching Series, and the Director of Education at StepLab. Peps has a unique ability to boil insights from educational research down into ultra-concise, bite-sized chunks for teachers. He does this weekly with his Evidence Snacks newsletter, and he does it in this episode of the ERRR podcast too. In this episode, we're discussing Peps's most recent book, Developing Expert Teaching a practical guide to designing effective professional development for others and ourselves. It's a phenomenal book that stitches together the best available evidence from multiple fields to create a concise, coherent and actionable framework that you can use to power up your own teaching or those of you are working with. Also, if you're keen for a weekly dose of educational insight, stimulation and resources, you might like my EdThreads newsletter. Each week I share with subscribers all of the juiciest educational tidbits that I've collected over the week wrapped up in an easy-to-digest email message. Join thousands of other teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas in education with this Friday afternoon message. To sign up to EdThreads, go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. 
That's ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 80 of the ERRR podcast with Peps McRae. Peps McRae, welcome back to the Education Research Reading Room. Ollie, it's a real pleasure to be back and congratulations on uh, becoming a father. Thanks, Peps. Yeah, absolutely loving it. It's 17 past seven and Ada went down at, at seven and she hasn't made a peep since, which is much better than what happened last night. So I'm counting my lucky stars for today. Fantastic. Peps, we're talking today about your fantastic new book, Developing Expert Teaching. And one of the initial points you make in that book is that PD is the most powerful lever that we have for improving education. Why is this? Yeah, so I think there's like a, a, a couple of big reasons for me. And the first is that when you look at the evidence of different levers that people have tried to pull, um, mostly like from a policy perspective, improving teacher effectiveness just seems to come out on top every time <laughs> in a much more robust way. Simon Burgess has done some like good analyses of this, and his position is that basically over the last few decades, it's the, the evidence has been increasingly consistent that you know, the more effective you make a teacher, the better the learning outcomes are. Whereas you know attempting to mess you know pull policy pull other policy levers like messing around with recruitment or school infrastructure or even you know toying around with performance related pay, whilst there have been some glimmers of like success in those interventions, they're nowhere near as consistent. So that's the first big thing is like the evidence is, is stronger for me. And secondly, it's a more sustainable approach to improving teaching because if you can help a teacher to get better, they will improve learning outcomes, not only for every pupil they're working with during that professional development ex- experience, but also for every student they work with for the rest of their career. So it's like, for me, there's a compound interest effect that I think means that the value of PD extends way beyond like other kind of more infrastructure type interventions. Cool. So there's two big points, like the evidence points that PD is the most powerful lever we have and also really making the most of that compounding effect. You know, we improve a teacher now, they stay effective, hopefully for the long term. Given that PD or if we accept that PD is the most powerful lever we have for improving education, you suggest in the book that there are three kind of major obstacles that often thwart PD efforts. And these are task complexity, habit inertia, and fuzzy relationships. Just to start off with kind of this first idea, task complexity, you have some great examples about the complexity of teaching within the book. How is it that we can truly understand the gargantuan challenge of teaching? (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure we ever can <laughs> fully, truly under, understand the uh, the kind of the challenge. However, I think the more you start to dig into it, the more nuanced and complex it seems to become. And so, in the book, I use this analogy of the brain surgeon compared to to the teacher. If you think about it, what a brain surgeon does, they they you know, have to operate on one person at a time. They get to see what they're working on. You know, they get to see the, the brain tissue <laughs> and change it as they, as they, you know, desire. And they've got this team of, you know, very skilled specialists and a range of pretty high tech tools to accompany their work. By contrast, a teacher has to work with, you know, 20, maybe 30 or more individuals at once. And the stuff that we are operating on 
you know, the mind we can't see at all. <laughs> Some of those students don't even want to be there. <laughs> and all of that we have to do with like really limited tools. We basically, most teachers only ever use their voice and some text and a few diagrams. <laughs> and we certainly don't have a, you know, a team of specialists on hand waiting. You know, if we're lucky, you might have a, a teaching assistant in the class. And they're awesome, but uh, certainly rare rare to have multiple individuals supporting you with, with that complex endeavor. So yeah, for, for me, you know, teaching is m multiple orders of magnitude more complex than brain surgery. But I think the, the kind of paradox here is that because nearly everyone in the world has been a student themselves and spent tens of thousands of hours in the classroom, and from that perspective, they see the teacher doing things in a way that looks easy, okay, we end up assuming that teaching is easy. And, you know, the, the heart of, at the heart of the paradox, there's this idea that the more expert the teacher is, the more easy they make their look work for the student. And so teaching is complex, but that's not something I think that's obvious to society at large. Mm, that's really interesting. I think, I think, I mean, that's a point I hadn't thought about before. The better a teacher is, the easier it looks. I guess it's the same with, you know, running an interview. The easier it seems, the the potentially the better you're running it. Or there's so many there's so many areas where that's that's the case. But I don't know. Maybe we need to develop some like some kind of tricks or some some Wizard of Oz kind of technology where <laughs> it's dressing up what we're doing so students think we're doing more than we are, or so they can actually get a sense of the the real challenge, or so society can get a sense of the real true challenge of teaching. And I think the the point you made there about the tools we use. Uh, you know our voice and a few diagrams essentially and maybe maybe some words and the impact that that has on people people's judgments of the difficulty of teaching i hadn't thought about that that's a that's a really interesting point so that was the first thing we've got the complexity of teaching we've got the second thing that makes PD hard is habit inertia. And the third thing is fuzzy relationships. We already spent quite a bit of time on the podcast on habit inertia. You know, I had Harry Fletcher Wood uh, talk about this. Josh talked about it as well in our, our prior podcast talk conversation. We talked about habits a bit. So we'll leave that for now. We might touch briefly on it later. But I'm keen to dive in a little bit deeper into this idea of fuzzy relationships. What do you mean by fuzzy relationships, Peps? And why does it make PD difficult? Yeah. So one of the reasons that teaching is so complex beyond the kind of task itself that I've described <laughs> in relation to brain surgery is that it's very hard to get better at via experience alone. And the, I'm going to draw another comparison here, but this time I'm going to draw a comparison with a darts player. Do you guys have darts players in Australia? I assume so. We, we have definitely have dart, darts boards. <laughs> cool. So when a darts player throws a dart, they get immediate, tangible, visible feedback on their performance. Okay, so I can you know, throw my art and throw my dart, and you know, misses the board, probably the first time I throw it, and I can immediately adjust the angle of my posture, you know, the strength of my muscle release, whatever it is, whatever technical terminology darts players use to adjust their throw. And I can continue to do that. And every time I do, I'm able to get immediate feedback and improve my performance. By contrast, when a teacher makes a change to their practice, let's say, you know, you take a different approach to how you open your lessons, 
you know, perhaps you have been warming up the prior knowledge students need for their lesson, and you know, now you are going to try to do some retrieval practice of some concepts you've explored two weeks ago. As a teacher, how, how do you know whether that change has made a difference? You know, you've kind of thrown the dart, but where has it landed? It's so, so hard to answer that question because you know, learning's invisible. We can only really infer it from student performance and some of the best test designers in the world <laughs> only end up with, you know, reliability, reliability rates that are, you know, still in the kind of 80% range. And for some subjects, even if we could reliably measure learning, we'd have to leave a gap, wouldn't we, before we measured it? Because we know that students forget and that we can't really count short-term learning as learning. So we'd have to leave it a few weeks before <laughs> we did that, that kind of test. And then finally, you know, if we did figure out that something had changed, it would be really hard to discern whether the impact was due to our change in teaching or some other random factor, you know, they had they slept incredibly well the previous night like yourself <laughs> or, 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 or something else. And so compared with darts, the relationship between teaching and learning, the relationship between performance and the, the kind of impact and the outcome is much, much more fuzzy. It's invisible, it's blurry, and it's delayed. And that means that it's really hard for teachers just to learn through experience, through things like trial and error, discovery. And as a result, the intuition that teachers build isn't as rock solid as, you know, the intuition that we develop in other aspects of our lives. And so not only is it difficult for teachers to improve by experience, but, you know, designing professional development that's able to shortcut some of this fuzzy feedback loop um, is, is a real challenge for PD designers too. Mm. Yeah, super interesting, Peps. I, so I, just to, sum, to try to summarise briefly the richness that you shared then, getting better at teaching is really hard because the feedback loop is very long. Basically, it's, ve it's very hard and there's this inherent built-in kind of delay as well. As you mentioned, testing performance isn't necessarily testing learning. So it's a real trap. And to link this to another idea for listeners, you know, when I asked Tom Sherrington, what's the most important thing for teachers to do or get better at? And he said, check for understanding. And putting that into this kind of framework, it's like, why is checking for understanding important? Well, checking for understanding actually shortens that feedback loop and means that the teacher has at least some insight into what's what they're managing to get to stick in the minds of learners or at least what they're attending to rather than waiting for the next test that might be a week or in a couple of weeks or a month away. Can I just... Yeah, please. I think it's a really important point. And the kind of additional insight we can squeeze out of that is that not only are those teachers who do check for understanding well, understanding what their pupils know and don't know and be able to teach them better, but they're also the teachers who are able to improve the fastest because they can make better inferences about the changes that they are making to their practice. Hmm. So check for understanding, win, win, win from <laughs> yeah. every possible idea. 100%, 100%, love it. So, I mean, that's one way that we can kind of tighten that feedback loop. We can really focus on checking for understanding. But something else you talk about in the book is given the fuzziness of teaching, it means that there is a very specific role for education research to play in developing expert teachers. Can you, can you expand upon that for us, Peps? Yeah, so... 
if it's difficult to learn from experience because of this fuzzy feedback loop, then we kind of need some other way <laughs> to give us some footholds upon which we can guide our practice. And just to be really clear here, I'm not saying experience isn't important. Experience is incredibly important in teaching, incredibly important in teaching, but it has some limits. And if we're really interested in turning the dial on teacher expertise, then we got to you know, think about what happens when we hit those limits and how can we overcome them. And research is one of the potential answers because good research is able to control some of those, some of that chaos of the classroom, control some of those variables that are hard to isolate. It often draws upon large amounts of data that allow it to make more confident inferences about its findings than just a kind of sample of one <laughs> as we as we have as teachers. And you know, good methodology and statistical design can also increase kind of the, the inferences that research can make. And as a result, good research can, for teachers, give us some principles that we can use to guide our practice that potentially are stronger than our own intu intuition. And so, yeah, I think it allows essentially the research allows teachers to supercharge their experience is the way I'd explain it. That's a cool way to put it. And I think I really like the framing of it's like, why is education research important? It's important particularly because teaching is a fuzzy task or it exists within, some people might say, a wicked domain. Uh, I think it's a lovely way to put it. In your book, Pep, I mean, one of your skills, great skills, Peps, and I mean, it is a skill, but calling it a skill probably doesn't pay tribute to the amount of effort that you put into it. That is your your ability to kind of distill something into a very concise format and also a, a, a very neat and often aesthetically pleasing uh, framework. And within within your book, you talk about the six essential ingredients of professional development. These are get it. See it, try it, keep it, fit it, and own it. I think you have to be listening to this with Daft Punk in the background. Get it, see it, try it, keep it, fit it, own it. <laughs> yeah, that would actually be good. We'll have to do a remix for that for the outro. I uh, love that. Um, was, was that any sort of inspiration for this for this model, Peps? <laughs> no, no, but you know who was an inspiration that's worth calling out is Paul Bambrick Santoyo. So his book... In his book, is it Leverage Leadership? I think he has like a framework for instructional coaching, which is see it, name it, do it. Okay. So the kind of it um, structure of this inspired my framework a little bit. I'm so worth calling that out. Thanks for Bambrick Santoy and Daft Punk. Could you give us a bit of an intro, like to, to this model, Peps? And probably more importantly, because we will go into each element. Uh, in a little bit more detail, maybe talk about how they fit together. Yeah, sure. So what I've tried really hard to do is identify the essential ingredients of effective professional development. So without these, teachers won't get better, okay? There are four core ingredients and two wider ingredients, which kind of support those core four ingredients. And the core, the four core ingredients are firstly, get it and see it, and they kind of come as a pair. And get it really is about helping teachers to understand the classroom, understand the mechanics of teaching and learning. Uh, you could kind of call it the, th the theory of teaching and learning, but 
you know, uh, we'll talk a little bit later about how that's maybe not perfectly accurate. And then it paired with that is this idea of helping teachers to see it, which is really about helping them to see what that theory looks like in practice. Okay. What does an effective model of teaching and learning look like? Yeah. When it's implemented in a classroom. So those two ingredients, you know, together provide the potential for teachers to be able to develop what I might call actionable knowledge. However, at that point, we still have a bit of a, a knowing doing gap. And so the next ingredient then is try it, which is essentially practice or you know, some version of deliberate practice where we want teachers to be doing some kind of rehearsal and providing feedback along the way and contextualizing all of this theory and what it looks like in practice for their own context, which is a critical piece of being effective. And then the final ingredient of the kind of four core ingredients is this idea of keeping it, which is essentially habit building. And you know, we've talked about this before. If teacher habits don't change, then nothing changes in the classroom. And so that's important that we pay attention to, to making sure that the changes that happen are secured and become part of teachers' everyday practice. So those are the four core ingredients. Get it, see it, try it, keep it. Mm -mm 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 -mm. And then we've got two wider ingredients. Uh, one I'm, gonna, I'm calling fit it, which is really about trying to fit, make sure that the professional development fits to the needs of the, the teacher and the school, okay, making sure it's relevant, it's, you know, fits their prior knowledge and expertise and experience and interests and priorities. And then the very last ingredient is this idea of own it. And you know we know from Mary Kennedy and many others that where teachers feel that they have ownership over their own professional development and growth, they tend to invest a lot more in. And so if you leave any one of those out, you are potentially dramatically short-circuiting your PD. Whereas if you have them all in there, then you're really increasing your chances of helping teachers to improve. Thanks, Pepsi. Great overview. Let's let's dig into each of these ingredients a little bit more. So in terms of get it, and this is, I think this is a quote from your book. No, this isn't a quote from your book. <laughs> this is my summary of, of your of, of section. Get it is all about helping teachers to deeply understand teaching and learning and to understand it at what you call the level of ingredients rather than at the level of meals, or as we've kind of spoken about on this podcast before, especially back with Sam Sims in episode 58, at the level of mechanisms rather than that kind of pro whole programs, or if we're thinking about a teaching strategy, at the actual mechanisms of the why. Why does this strategy work rather than what are the three steps that I need to do? Obviously, putting them together is helpful, but really understanding the ingredients and how they play in is crucial. And in service of that, you kind of introduce three ways uh, which I'm going to call the, the triple T trifecta. You've probably got a better name for it though, Pep, but they do all start with T. You talk about how we can use triangulation, translation, and tempering to make sure that we do actually get it when we're trying to get our heads around a new kind of teaching strategy or approach. How can teachers use triangulation, translation, and tempering, Peps, to get it? Yeah, sure. And so just to confirm what you're suggesting around what get it actually means, yeah, so... You know, the, the classroom is a, a hugely complex system. It's like this vast web of you know, cognitive, behavioral, social forces in action, many of which are invisible 
to us as teachers and the better we as teachers understand the, that kind of vast complex web of, of forces the underlying mechanics of teaching and learning the the better we can explain predict and it is eventually influence it and so you know get it is really about trying to get underneath the uh, you know this this kind of like in, invisible set of mechanics in the classroom um, to understand it and research can really help us with this however research isn't always designed initially for teachers to be able to pick up and use in the classroom uh, you know it's often conducted in contexts that are different to our own it might be done in a lab or you know in a different country it uh, uses methods that sometimes limit the inferences we can draw and it's you know not necessarily written <laughs> <laughs> to be easily digestible or even actionable um, for teachers. So a lot of research can be hard work to interpret and even to kind of draw the implications. And so, yeah, I think for research to be useful, we or somebody, not necessarily teachers, but somebody needs to do a bit of triangulation, translation, tempering. And so what are these things? What are these processes? Well, the first, triangulating evidence, essentially, when research gets done, because research only works best when it focuses on a very small thing at a time, because it has to isolate variables and gather lots of data in order for us to be confident about some of the inferences we make, the kind of footholds that we're going to use to guide our teaching. We've got to look across multiple pieces of research for those patterns <laughs> that allow us to be, you know, make confident, confident inferences. And so this is what triangulation is really all about. It's about trying to join the dots between multiple pieces of research, ideally across multiple fields. So, for example, if we look at something like instructional coaching, which, you know, is a, I believe, to be a highly effective form of professional development, one of those meals that we talked about earlier. The reason I believe it's effective is because not only are there some studies done by educational economists that suggest that Instructional coaching is effective in multiple countries uh, with like multiple programs. When you also look at instructional coaching through the lens of cognitive science, what we know from cognitive science, it also stacks up really effectively. So just trying to like pull together lots of different threads is the kind of first stage in us understanding what's going on in the classroom. Once we kind of have a sense of the, the evidence base and that we've got confidence there, then the next stage is this idea of translating evidence. And that really is very simply about trying to draw out the most useful insights and then think really carefully about their implications and kind of codify all of that, as well as caching it, couching it all in you know, a language that is appropriate for teachers. The ways that I find are most helpful to do this are to use connectives. <laughs> okay, so as far as possible, when I try to you know, explain things from research to teachers, I'll say things like, um, it's good to highlight common ground between students, okay, because belonging can boost motivation. So there's the kind of implication and the insight that follows, or you can flip it around and you could, you know, talk about the insight first. We can only hold a few things in our head, you know, that's an insight from cognitive science. And so the implication from that is that it's helpful to write instructions on the board rather than just asking students to hold them in their head. So when you say connectives, you're talking about like the because there, in the first example and the so in the second example. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, thank you. And then the final stage is this idea of tempering the evidence. So even the best evidence can only give us like a likelihood, a probability that a you know 
something we do will lead to a particular effect. Research can't give us certainty, it can only help us make better bets. And we need to try to somehow communicate the statistical confidence that comes with the research that we're using. So, like I said with earlier with instructional coaching, you know, there is a, a growing body of evidence to suggest that it is an effective approach at that level from a number of different fields. However, something like psychological safety has a much fewer number of studies to support it in an educational context. And so, you know, we just have to tread a little bit more carefully if we're going to you know, be taking a heavy-handed approach to employing inter- psychological safety across our school. Yeah, super interesting. And and I mean, that I'd love to dig a little bit more into that psychological safety piece, but I think we'll have to leave that for, for another time. And in fact, I believe you had an evidence stack on it, snack on it recently, perhaps <laughs> if people want to Google Peps McRae evidence snack psychological safety we'll, we'll pop it in the show notes and uh, shout out for Lekha Sharma who's written a book uh, called Building Culture in Schools and so yeah check that out as well if you're interested in psychological safety and other school culture stuff totally totally so yeah thanks for that Peps in terms of getting it triangulation so making sure that multiple sources and ideally from multiple fields kind of support an idea translation and the tip you gave there was make sure that you're using the connectives like button or sorry because and so and therefore to kind of link the the outcome with the cause and tempering you know take the evidence with a grain of salt compare it to your own uh, experience think about how it might change in your particular context and things like that with three great ideas there one additional complexity of get it that you outline in your book is that we see not only primary outcomes when we implement things in education but we also see secondary tertiary and i don't know what the word is for, for fourth but fourth and fifth and sixth uh and so on uh outcomes within education whenever we implement something however we've unfortunately got this bias towards kind of short-term outcomes and this can often get us into trouble what does this mean for us and how can we account for this in the context of getting it yeah so what it means essentially is that we need to where possible become a better at profession, maybe not better, but just have more regular conversations about the latter order effects of our work. Okay, so the second and third order effects of our work. So, you know, example I use in the book is that when we praise a student, it gives them an immediate boost to their motivation. Okay, that's like a first order effect. However, over time, that can attune them more towards performing for me as a teacher rather than learning for its own sake. You know, that's a a second order effect. And I don't think in school we kind of talk about the different orders of effects anywhere near enough or argue the case for which we should be pursuing and when. And the kind of parallel conversation that emerges whenever we start to look at multiple order effects is a question around what our ideal timeline is as, as teachers, as in what not only what outcomes do we care about creating for our students, but when do we want them to happen, okay? Because if we care about outcomes happening within you know, the, this week or this year, we might take very different strategies depending on those two preferences. And that is not only a conversation that probably needs to happen between teachers, but across a whole school because, you know, need to take a uh, yeah a school and even maybe even system wide view 
on, on the answer to those questions. Interesting. And I think it's a challenge that's compounded by the fact that we are teaching in kind of a fuzzy domain and developing teachers. And so it's like we already have so few reliable sources of information and the feedback loop is already naturally quite long that to then ignore those for, or, or de-emphasize those first order effects to try to pay more attention to the second order effects is even harder in this area than it perhaps is in other areas. I came across another, in fact, you put me onto another interesting kind of source on this front, um, Peps, and that is the the almanac of Naval, Naval Ravikant as the narrator of the audiobook uh, pronounced his name. And he has a simple heuristic that's quite interesting in this space. He says, if you're evenly split on a difficult decision, take the path more painful in the short term. And then another little bit of excerpt from his book that adds on that, he says, your brain is overvaluing the side with the short-term happiness and trying to avoid the one with short-term pain. So you have to cancel a tendency out. It's a powerful subconscious tendency by leaning into the pain. As you know, most of the gains in life come from suffering in the short term so you can get paid in the long term. So I just thought that was an interesting one. I, I know you've done lots of suffering in the short term to get paid in the the, the long term. Peps, uh, you, you, rec- you've, you recently did a very challenging kind of physical race. Do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about suffering in the long term and some of the long lo- suffering in the short term and some of the longer term payoffs um, from that uh, little escapade? Yes, uh, it, <laughs> in as with many sports, you you know the more effort you put in. The, uh, the, the the stronger the outcome you get, and I suppose there are some analogies to getting better as a teacher. Sometimes you have to put in the kind of hard work to change your practice and stick with it before you start to see some like performance gains further down the line. Mm. Good. I think I think it also occurs in relationships as well. And there's kind of two examples that have just popped into my mind while we've been talking now. One is in the book, I'm trying to remember it now, I think it's called Passionate Marriage by David Schnarch. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that surname correctly. I remember it at, at the start, this is a bit of a vague memory, but he, he talks about how based upon short observations of couples when they kind of were in his quote-unquote love lab and they'd stay there for a day or two and they'd kind of video record them to to see their behavior and then they'd try to predict whether they'd be together like 5, 10, 15 years later. They were able to predict with 90-something percent accuracy whether these relationships would stay together. And one of the things, one of the really clear cues was how quickly they would bring bring something up if it was frustrating them or if they were feeling annoyed, right? It's hard to bring up something when it might cause conflict, right? That's short-term pain. But actually what happens when you do that is you kind of address the issue, you bring it to the fore, you sort it out, and then you're able to move forward and you end up with a longer-term gain. Another another example that I've been thinking about a bit recently, when you have a young child in your house, there are, there are many, many opportunities for short-term pain, especially when there's two people who could potentially change the incredibly smelly nappy or try to soothe the (laughs) incredibly distraught baby late at night. Now, that's definitely some short-term pain, but I have come to realize that every time I endure that short-term pain, I'm making an investment in my relationship with my wife. (laughs) That is going to lead, that that does actually strengthen it uh, for the longer term. So, I think 
this is definitely a, a framework or this heuristic from Naval Ravikant and, and expounded upon in your book, Peps, is also a, something that can help us in relationships as well, hopefully. Yeah, parenting is a big one. Any parent out there knows that <laughs> the kind of trade-offs that you make between the now and the future. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's another one. It's like I was talking to Craig Barton the other day and he's talking about the challenges he's having with his four-year-old kind of sleeping and whether when his four-year-old crawls into Craig's bed at three o'clock in the morning, Craig has this trade-off. It's like, do I endure 30 minutes of crying as I try to relocate him back to his bed over and over again? Or do I just say, yes, okay, you're here and then have, you know, have to deal with compromised sleep for potentially days, weeks and months into the future. Craig has quite happily succumbed to the latter and people can have listen to some of his recent podcasts to hear him talk more about that. It's a trade-off. So, that's get it. And we spend a bit of time on that, Pets, but I think it is a really important kind of thing. It, it's, it's, it's one of the fundamental bases on, on which all subsequent kind of PD is based. The, the teacher has to have a deep understanding of kind of what's going on to avoid those kind of oft-quoted lethal mutations we talk about. It. The next thing that you talk about or the thing that you talk about happening potentially at the same time or around the same time is helping teachers to see it. Now, you kind of covered this in your intro a little bit, but could you just help us to understand in a bit more detail why is it really important that teachers actually see it when it comes to developing expertise? Yeah, so I think the main reason is because teaching is often too complex to describe in words, okay? That's pretty much what it boils down to. It's really hard for me to describe to you, either in words or in text, what an effective approach might look like in practice. If I were to do that, if I were to communicate that in words, it would take books, <laughs> it takes so many words to do it justice. And so there's actually a really strong efficiency uh, reason for helping teachers to see it because it just speeds up the process of communication markedly. And so when we can, when we show teachers rather than just tell them what good looks like, we help them to grasp what it looks like much, much more quicker and in a much more nuanced way. And the best way to kind of do this is by providing teachers with models of effective practice. You know, and a model is just another word for an example. And it might be a model of a performative aspect of practice, such as, you know, how a teacher manages his behavior or gives instructions or, you know, provides an exposition in the classroom. Or it might be a model of how they, you know, do some of the non-performative aspects of teaching, you know, how they plan for a lesson or design uh, an exit ticket or assessment. Hmm. No, that's great. And I mean, that headline you had there, you know, teaching is too difficult to describe in words, I think, you know, captures it so well, perhaps. There are multiple ways that we can try to support teachers to see it. And some of the ones that may come to mind for people are things like, you know, you can use videos. You can go directly into someone's class and you can observe them. Uh, you can kind of do role play might be another one, which is kind of similar to the classroom observation, but slightly different. And then there's kind of also a case study approach, which I guess is often more to do with the kind of the word the, the narrative there, but often that can kind of sketch an image in people's minds as well. And there are different ways to do case studies as well. 
some people might kind of think of these and think of them as kind of interchangeable or, you know, or just pick the one that's most convenient or you have access to. But something that I bet I appreciated in your book was you actually really highlighted the kind of the affordances, which is a fancy word, meaning, you know, the, the costs and benefits or the, the things that they can achieve of each of these different approaches and kind of, yeah, highlighted the costs and benefits. So could you do that for us t- today, Peps? Could you help us understand why we might want to use videos over classroom observations, over case studies, uh, or vice versa? Sure. Okay. So let's pick out a few. So live demonstrations, okay, or live demonstrations without a student, without any students present, if we start with that. And so this might be, this can happen often during instructional coaching session where, you know, I I want to show you how I get my students to enter the classroom. There's no students there, but I'm going to walk it through with you and show you exactly what I do. Or it might happen in a, you know, whole group professional development session where you know i want to do the same it doesn't necessarily need to be in a one-to-one context now these are like quite an effective way of modeling because they you know i can throw together that model instantly i don't need any resources i don't need a class of students (laughs) there um really flexible and i can contextualize that model for my audience as well so you know i can use particular language that i know will Will suit them. I can, you know, draw in particular examples and even like, you know, subjects and phases to contextualize that model. However, you know, there are no students present, so it kind of lacks a bit of authenticity and a bit of proof as well. You know, there will be some teachers there thinking, oh, does this really work in practice? So that's a kind of downside. And one of the upsides, though, is that because there are no students present and because I can control exactly what the model contains, it increases the chances that the teachers that are watching the model are able to pay attention to the, you know, the, the actual key features. There are less distractions, essentially, in that model. So you know, there's a few pros and cons there. In contrast, we might think about then you know, classroom observations, like you mentioned. Classroom observations are much more authentic, and they provide you know, lots of proof of context. When you see a real teacher doing it and it working, it's really hard to argue against that, isn't it? Um, however, in contrast to the live model, there are lots and lots of other things happening in that situation. And so there is a risk that the teachers we're working with don't pay attention to the right thing and you know, draw the wrong conclusions. It's hard to kind of make sure that the teacher ends up seeing the thing you want them to see because you know, live, live lessons are unpredictable and can go a completely different way than planned. And so observations can be useful, but they are highly uncontrollable. And so work best when you've got a high degree of confidence that the teacher's going to see the thing you want them to see, and you work with the teacher before the observing teacher beforehand to you know have a predetermined focus <laughs> and make sure that they you know zoom in on that, try to to filter out the other stuff. Classroom videos are this kind of like in between model where you are you know, capturing live footage. And it could be capturing footage of a live classroom or it could be capturing footage of a live model without any students there. <laughs> it can happen both ways. Now, of course, there's a bit of a uh, capital overhead with using video models because you've got to get the kit out. You've got to have the kit to start with and you've got to, like, you know, c- capture it and do all the post-production. And however, once you've done that, you end up with this resource that is, you know, highly portable, it's really consistent, you know, every time you play it, you're going to see the same thing. And 
as if you're facilitating PD as a coach or a, or a leader, you can observe that model alongside the teachers you're working with and deconstruct it together. Whereas that's not something you can do if you're doing a live demo yourself. So yeah, some advantages there. And I think like one just to call out around the consistency piece, if you're a school or an organization who's trying to build consistent practice across school, which is important because you know, that supports in lots of ways with learning, then having a, a video exemplar model of like what, you know, how we you know, roll out instructions in our classrooms that teachers can see consistently across multiple years and multiple classrooms and multiple contexts can really help build that consistency. Mm. Do you want to build on that a little bit more? Because I think something that's taken me a while to get my head around is actually the true value of multiple examples when it comes to developing like, I guess what, what I could call like a rounded understanding or a, a rounded understanding of an te- instructional approach or a, an understanding of an instructional approach that spans the spectrum of what is an effective kind of implementation of it. At what point we start to push outside of the range of effective utilization of that practice yeah okay so really really important point here when we show a teacher a model the goal is not to provide them with something that they can just imitate (laughs) replicate in their classroom because that is not what expertise is (laughs) okay expertise is not just the replication of a particular technique. Although, you know, you could say it's a form of expertise, but we call it routine expertise. And that's not really what we talk about when we talk about teacher expertise, because the classroom is such a dynamic, complex place that the same challenge rarely pops up twice in a teaching career. (laughs) And so you need to be by default, like adaptive to be an expert in the classroom. So to get there, what we want is to help teachers to build a deep understanding of what good looks like rather than just imitate a technique. And to achieve that, one of the best, one of the best ways to achieve that is to provide teachers with multiple models, multiple examples. Because I'm sure, as we've talked about before on the pod, uh, we understand from things like variation theory that when we are exposed to multiple examples that share the same essential features, what our brain does is essentially over time picks out the essential features, encodes those, and gradually begins to filter out some of the more surface redundant features. And that then allows us in our classroom to implement that technique in a much more flexible way. We can create new techniques that still have those same essential features, but look completely different and yet are still effective. So yeah, that's why it's important to like expose teachers to multiple models that share those same essential features. Yeah, I love it. So multiple models help us to distinguish the signal from the noise, I guess is another way that it could be said. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This episode's summary with Peps will share why PD is the most powerful lever we have for improving education, 
the three main obstacles that thwart most PD efforts, what fuzziness means for the role of education research in developing expert teaching, the anatomy of expertise, the essential ingredients of PD, a deep dive into each of the elements of Pepsi's model, bringing together insights from the podcast, and much more. At higher tiers, each of our supporters also have access to a members-only podcast with special insights and episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR, clip requests of your favourite episode segments, and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast and to explore additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, let's jump straight back into this episode of the ERRR podcast. Try it, Peps. Try it is the next thing. And try it is all about actually rehearsing and a teaching technique and ideally, you know, receiving quality feedback on this as well. On this front, I have two questions for you. The first question is, what makes rehearsal quality rehearsal? And the second is, how can leaders create a culture in which rehearsal is valued and not dreaded? Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, what makes good rehearsal? Well, the first thing that we want to just call out that may be obvious for some, but isn't going to be for everyone. So I just want to rubber stamp it is that it's best to rehearse outside of the lesson context. Okay. Because in a lesson, when you're teaching students, there are lots and lots of things that are happening and lots and lots of things you need to think about at any one time. And, there, and to make an effective change to your practice, you need to actually devote a lot of attention to it. <laughs> okay. Cause there's like, multiple things to think about and say and do all at once and as a result when we try to if we try to make a change to our practice in the busy context of a lesson we'll end up doing a pretty poor job of it may well even fail to make that change and so rehearsing outside of a lesson context ideally in a similar environment such as the classroom okay where you're going to be doing that is a good first step we can further kind of ramp up the efficacy of rehearsal by shrinking the change by you know really focusing in on one small step as we might describe it and again this is for a similar reason because our working memory is limited we can only attend to a very few number of things at once and if we are trying to you know change a large proportion of how we manage behavior in our classroom we're not going to change anything at all whereas if we really you know shrink that change and think about how we're going to address students who are calling out when we're asking questions, then there's much greater chance we're going to be able to you know, come up with a change to our teaching that actually sticks in that situation. A key callback between the models that we've talked about earlier and rehearsal is that when we pr- provide teachers with models of effective teaching, those models are never going to match their immediate context, right? Even if you, the model you see is of the same subject, the same phase, and, and the same community culture as your, your school, the students you're teaching are going to be different, and you have your own style as a teacher as well. And so during, you know, before rehearsal, it's really important to give teachers a bit of time to contextualize the model for their own setting. And that just means thinking a little bit about how it will differ for their own students, their own situation, their own style. Uh, and to come up with a kind of a modified, more appropriate model for them. 
for particularly challenging or particularly important rehearsal pieces, it's often worth scripting the key moves. So literally writing down exactly what you will say, because when you, you know, stand up and just try to ad lib it, often you won't say <laughs> the best thing. And as a result, you'll be starting to encode or see the habits of a less effective pattern of speech. And so even though scripting feels a little bit weird, I'm going to write down exactly what I'm going to say. There's a very good rationale for it and it you know, can lead to much better outcomes. And then the kind of final pieces of, of effective rehearsal are really around conducting multiple rounds. So just like riding a bike, you know, or trying to surf, you can expect to get it right the first time you try it. Our brain takes time to kind of integrate or assimilate all of the kind of different micro moves and sharpen them up and make them work together and get to a base level of fluency with this stuff. And so really it's best to practice to a point where we're beyond comfortable because eventually we're going to take this practice to the classroom where <laughs> we're going to be knocked from all sides uh, uh, or we're going to be having to think about all sorts of different things and again lots of unpredictable face lots of unpredictability and as a result if we are overconfident through rehearsal then that change is much more likely to survive first contact with the classroom and then this final kind of piece which is related to the multiple rounds of rehearsal is that if we can add some kind of formative or constructive feedback between each round of rehearsal then we're just going to really refine that uh, re refine that rehearsal even even further. Now it's important to note that you don't want to like be adding feedback in ways that changes the whole rehearsal completely. <laughs> so you're actually rehearsing something different that doesn't actually count as rehearsal. Is it? You know, you're doing a completely different thing and messing around with the you know the the, the basis of effective rehearsal uh, completely. What we want to do is, is just to offer kind of minor tweaks to help people ensure that their rehearsal has fidelity to the what we call these essential features described earlier. So it's just kind of saying, oh, you know, you thought you were doing this, but you're actually doing this. Or did you notice that you'd said that? Maybe try saying saying this next time. Um, and so when you package all of those things together, which is quite a lot, but, you know, over time we can, we can get there, uh, you can end up with quite an effective rehearsal session, which means that teachers can or teachers will have practiced the thing, they, the change they want to make in the classroom in a sufficiently effective way so that when they take it to the classroom, there's much greater chance that it actually works. Hmm. That's great, Pep. So, I mean, to pull out some of the other things you mentioned there, simplify the practice, you know, script the practice, really plan it out, make sure you conduct multiple rounds and incrementally improve it round to round through feedback if you can get it under that second question how can leaders create a culture you know often people see rehearsals a bit awkward in many many schools it just isn't done it's just and a lot of teachers have ever, never even heard of this concept of rehearsing what i'm going to do in the classroom why, why on earth would i do that so what can leaders actually do to build a culture in which rehearsal is valued and not dreaded i don't think this is in 10 years definitely 20 years <laughs> this you won't be asking me this question <laughs> not just because we're old and you know beyond but because we have got to a point where rehearsal becomes normal okay because it is such a you know a no-brainer as it were from like a, a teacher training perspective but until we get to that point 
it will be uncomfortable for teachers who've never done it before. It's not normal as part of their teacher training experience to kind of jump into that mode. And so we need to kind of be proactive there in terms of helping teachers to overcome that discomfort because otherwise we just end up colluding to omit it because you know it's uncomfortable for me as a as a as a coach or a PDD just uncomfortable for the teacher. Let's just not do it and have a chat instead. Is is a serious serious risk. And if we kind of end up going down that path, we miss out one of these ingredients, and the whole kind of house of you know deck of house of cards falls apart. And so I think this is one of the kind of critical points of failure. And we can get around it by uh, doing a few things. We can you know manage expectations. We can make sure that teachers know that this potentially might be uncomfortable, that it's not a surprise for them. We can lead the way. We can, as PD leaders, we can do it in front of them and show them that, you know, we're up for doing it and it's not actually that that bad. We can make sure that there is no, or we can try to reduce the fear, any fear that they might have in this situation by agreeing that any kind of rehearsal will be done in a environment of trust and confidentiality you know we're not going to be like laughing at each other and we're not going to be like talking about what we see outside of that context and then i think we can also use this as an opportunity to remind ourselves that learning is challenging and that this is a good opportunity to see life as a student <laughs> okay we ask our students to do hard uncomfortable stuff all the time and i think it's like yeah it's fine for us as a profession to be pushed to you know, step up to, to do the same. That's a great summary, Pep. So just to recap, you kind of made four points there. First is leaders can build a culture of rehearsal through kind of managing expectations, really framing that getting better and this rehearsal thing might be challenging, but that it's a productive challenge. Secondly, lead the way do it first, either live or maybe even have a video of you rehearsing or something like that. Keep it supportive and confidential. And finally, learn through taking or emphasize that it's really valuable for us as teachers to learn through taking the role of the learner. Keep it to the next idea in your model, Peps. And this is a crucial step. And as you write in the book, and this is a quote, if we really want to secure impact, we've got to take actionable knowledge and make it a habit. However, we've actually covered habits, as we mentioned before, quite a lot on this podcast. So if people want to go back and check out more about this, they can check out episode 54 with yourself on motivating students or episode 57 with Harry Fletcher Wood on habits of success. So we're going to do a little bit of a, a timed approach here, Peps, to keep this this one short and sweet. Uh, I've got my countdown timer here, setting it to two minutes and zero seconds. And I'd love for you to just, within this two minutes, and two minutes only, share a few tips on turning a newly acquired skill into a habit. And I, I sw actually switched my phone off, so I need to use my watch and it's going to take a bit longer. But here you go. I'm holding up for you. You can see that, Peps. Two minutes, ready, set, go. Okay, I just started my own timer as well. The first, <laughs> I'm going to go for three tips. Okay, the first is it's better to try and replace habits rather than add new habits in. If you just like constantly try to add like new techniques to your, your repertoire, new strings to your bow, whatever you want to call it, then you're just going to end up with like a bloated teaching repertoire. And worse than that, those new habits you try to integrate are going to compete with the old habits. And guess what? The old habits are going to win every time just because they're more entrenched. And so a bit like smokers do when they try to transition from smoking by using a, you know, a fake cigarette or a nicotine patch or, you know, chewing some gum. 
it's better if we can in, in teaching if we try to replace the, the habits we have rather than add new ones. That's the first tip. Second tip is uh, that we know that when we explicate our intentions, this is from the kind of implementations intentions research, when we explicate our intentions, we stand a much greater chance of habits actually taking hold. And so the more explicit we can be about where and when and how exactly we're going to make a change, the more chance that it actually ends up taking hold. And then the third tip, um, as somebody famous said, well, I'm sure you know who, uh, what gets measured gets managed. And so where you can kind of track and ideally share publicly your kind of performance with regard to the habit that you're trying to seed over time, then there's much greater chance that you're going to hit those, you know, hit those milestones of change. Thanks, Babs. I think you came in just under time then, especially with the magic of editing. So <laughs> those three takeaways there, replace, don't add, explicate your intentions, be really clear about exactly the change you're trying to make and track, uh, track really, really track what you're trying to change because as Peter Drucker, I believe it was, said, what gets measured gets managed. Fantastic. That's habits. Hopefully they're built now, listeners. Fit it. We're now kind of moving to the two factors that you said should be developed before slash alongside the um, get it, see it, try it, keep it. I think uh, your your image is helping me. It's kind of a bit of dual coding in my in my mind there. That's very good. And in your book, you suggest that for, for PD to have impact, it must be matched to the developmental needs of individuals and ideally their teams and schools. But this kind of leads to a bit of a challenge, which is, how do we actually pinpoint the highest leverage thing to work on? And, you know, how do we do that for an individual? How do we do that for a team? And how do we do it for a whole school? What suggestions do you have on this front, Peps? Yeah. So a few different things we can do. First is that we try to you know, ground our diagnoses in some kind of data. Okay. We take a systematic approach to it, I suppose, for want of a better way of thinking about it. And what kind of sources of data can we use to identify the kind of high, this, these highest leverage areas of intervention? Well, it can be things like classroom observations, you know, a bit of lesson plan analyses, student work sampling. You can even use things like knowledge quizzes or practice surveys or, you know, peer self-assessments for, for teachers. So a whole bunch of, and, you know, if you're using StepLab, you can easily see exactly which steps people are, are, are working on or have mastered and have not yet mastered as well. So, you know, a bunch of different ways that we can gather data that will help us make decisions. Now, importantly, when we're gathering data to help us make a decision, we need to remember that we're only doing that and nothing more. We're not trying to necessarily judge or score or grade teachers when we're doing it because <laughs> the real potential risk there, because if teachers feel like they are being judged and there are potential consequences to the judgments we make, then they're going to clam up. They're going to put on, you know, show lessons and they're just not going to be up for, uh, you know, taking the risks that are associated with effective professional development. So just important uh, kind of counter to the or important nuance to the you know, grinding diagnosis in data is to make sure that we gather just enough data to diagnose and focus on developing teachers, not judging them. Now, when you've got that data, there's, there are some decisions to be made, okay? PD is 
more efficient when you do it in a group. Okay. But caveat on here is that that only is true if everyone in the group has exactly the same <laughs> development need. Okay. And, you know, as we've discussed at length throughout this podcast, teaching is an enormously complex endeavor and every classroom is different. So the likelihood that every single teacher has the same development need is actually pretty low. And so there are some kind of trade-offs to be made here. For new teachers in particular, it's, I think, definitely the case that you want to provide them with one-on-one -on -one professional development support because their needs will be so time sensitive that it would be, you know, be crazy to try and group them together with others. However, for more experienced teachers, even though they might have a greater development need in one area than another, it is possible for multiple teachers to focus on the same development area at once because everyone can get better at assessment. Everyone can get better at you know, exposition. Everyone can get better at designing effective medium-term plans. And so I think there's like, once you have the, the, your data, then you've got some decisions to make. And essentially for me, it's a case of what is the best setup for the most people, given the tools you have available. Now, if you have like uh, instructional coaching set up in your school, then out of the gate, you can make really effective decisions about that because you can give pretty much everyone <laughs> a very bespoke PD experience however if you don't then you might need to you know, team people you know create some groups within your school where different groups are focusing on areas that they need to work on as well as that it's important to make sure that you are adjusting to the expertise level of the teachers you're working with uh, we know that from Kaluga's work is that how you pronounce it <laughs> that uh, when teachers have a greater level of prior knowledge or expertise in a particular area, they benefit from less guidance, not more, as well as focusing on or identifying an effective high leverage area for a teacher or a group of teachers to work on. We also need to kind of adjust the amount of guidance we provide during that professional development session to kind of meet the, the, the expertise level that they're working at. The only thing I'd say around that is that typically we are working with teachers on areas that they need to get better at. And so to a certain extent, most teachers will probably benefit from a you know, decent degree of, of guidance by default. Let's go, Peps. Let's move straight on to the final idea in your model. And that is own it. And own it's all about building buy-in from teachers, but it's a bit more than that. And I imagine this is why you didn't call it buy it. That is, you want teachers to move on beyond just buying it and saying, yeah, okay, I'll do this, to actually owning it and saying, I actually want to get better. I want to improve. I'm keen to put in the effort it's going to take and face the challenges it's going to take to, to become a better practitioner. Let's imagine that we're, we're talking, we probably are in, in many cases, talking to a a uh, teacher or a leader who's moving into a new environment, they're kind of tasked with leading some professional development for a group of teachers. And this group of teachers, you know, there might be a few people in there who are pretty keen, but on the whole, there's a bit of a reluctance and a bit of a kind of change fatigue kind of a vibe going on. They've seen initiatives come and go. Uh, what, what makes this one any different? What are some of the things that a person in that kind of a position can do to help 
uh, the teachers they're working with, not just kind of buy it and go along for the ride, but actually to own it. Yeah. And so, you know, just to affirm what you've said there, like the more that a teacher feels like they are being deliberate in choosing their own path, or at least approving of the path that's being laid down in front of them, the more they're likely to invest their own attention and effort in it. And that's really important because, you know, PD is not a quick fix. <laughs> it's something that can take, you know, years and years and years, or, you know, as a career long, essentially never ending endeavor. And so having a teacher invest much more over time will, you know, make, make a significant difference. And so we kind of need to build in some of those points where teachers can make deliberate choices or approve in deliberate ways. And so we can just like build in those commitment points, as we might call them. Um, you know, you can do that at the you know, start of a PD session. You can literally ask teachers, you know, this is what we have on offer today. Do you think this is valuable? And are you up for improving? <laughs> you know, are you up for taking it on? But we can take that even further by uh, like helping them understand why it might be a useful thing for them. You know, I think Danny Kahneman talks a lot about this is that often the reason that people don't make good choices for themselves is because they lack information. And so as teachers, it probably makes sense for us to assume that teachers don't know a whole lot about what's on offer and really just spell it out for them as explicitly as possible. And ways I've found helpful in the past to do that is kind of like doing uh, three things. It's like, A, narrating the journey. Here's the plan for today. This is what we're going to be doing. Then following up by exposing the benefits of that plan. So this is how this plan is going to help you as a teacher to get better, um, how it's going to improve your lives, how it's going to improve your students' lives. And then finally to stamp that by clarifying the commitment that's going to be needed from them. So in order to get that you know, benefit for yourself and for your students, this is what you're, you're going to need to put in for today. And then if you follow up with the, right, are you up for it? Are you in? Then that kind of rubber stamps that, that commitment in, in total. Where you can add some like proof to the offer, whether that's you know a piece of research that suggests that doing this thing is going to improve your teaching, or even just some kind of social proof, where you can say actually you know this other group of teachers or this other you know, schools did this and they got these results, uh, that can kind of increase the, the the salience of those benefits as well. That's great, Peps. And just to draw draw out that kind of final point about understanding the why, I think narrating the journey, you know, sketching out exactly what it's going to look like. I liked how you emphasised exposing the benefits of the plan. So, and in particularly adding some proof as evidence, you know, research evidence or social proof, and then clarifying the commitment that's needed kind of harks back to what you were talking about before around the rehearsal, which is like framing it up, saying what it's going to feel like, what it's going to be like. Absolutely crucial. I'm really interested, Peps. You've created this, or you've distilled is probably a better word, this fantastic model of teacher development. And really, this is what we're trying to do in all kind of teacher education, initial teacher education, in-service professional developments and so on. Given that we have this model and there does seem to be so much knowledge and an increasing amount of knowledge about how to improve teacher practice, what would you like to see in teacher education moving forwards? I think the <laughs> bottom line is I'd love to see m more of these ingredients in place. Okay. My working assumption is that in the majority of PD around the world, there are a few instances where all of these ingredients are in place, basically. 
And as a result, we're kind of not being efficient. We're not squeezing the most out of those professional development opportunities. So I think that's, that's it. You know, that, but that's, of course, is only half the battle. Uh, you know, making sure that all the ingredients are there creates the potential for PD to work. But then there's a whole implementation piece as well, of course, about, you know, making it work, aligning the, the, the school culture, you know, getting the school culture right, um, making sure that leaders are on board, uh, tracking, monitoring, all that kind of stuff. Cool. I was trying to throw your softball around the applied science piece there. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah. So a couple of things. Firstly, <laughs> in short, uh, the dream would be that effective PD, PD everywhere employs all of these ingredients, right? My kind of working assumption is that there are lots of instances of PD around the world where there are ingredients missing. And as a result, uh, you know, teachers aren't developing as uh, effectively as they could. And there's kind of like efficiency bleed in the system, okay? Because you put in lots of effort and no change happens. That's a bit of a shame. But also alongside this, for effective PD to happen, it requires time and investment. You know, all of this stuff is really not easy to execute. And if we're going to, as a profession, have the kind of like investment, the funding investment and the commitment at a policy level for all of this to, to happen, we need to have like a higher level of public perception of the technical complexity of teaching, <laughs> right? In medicine, they have a much greater budget, partly because people really do, nearly everyone appreciates the vast complexity of, you know, medical work. Uh, like I said earlier, you know, teaching is way more complex and probably equally just as important. You know, we're not, teachers don't save lives every day, but they definitely change the trajectory of lives uh, massively. And as a result, I think, you know, education deserves at least as much investment and kind of respect from the, the population. But in order to get there, we have to help the general public at large to have a better appreciation of the technical complexity and the kind of power of effective teaching. So yeah, someday I'm hoping that there's going to be a Netflix uh, a documentary that dives into like teaching and pulls it apart like a kind of a post soccer game analysis to help public at large really understand exactly all of the kind of like massive complex moves that teachers pull out to make what they do look easy. There you go, Netflix. You've heard it here. The the offers there, Peps McRae, happy to <laughs> to collaborate with you on a series of deconstructing teaching and, and showing the complexity inherent within it and showing the power of it to change lives. Uh, that's great. Perhaps I'd like to zoom out a little bit and look look at this book series because this this book sits uh, Developing Expert Teaching. It's the final, you tell us it's the final instalment in your high-impact teaching series. And for for listeners who haven't as yet collected them all, you've got to catch them all, uh, the four books are Lean Lesson Planning, memorable teaching, motivated teaching, and this most recent developing expert teaching. I'm really interested, Peps, like what caused you to start this series? And I'm also curious about like how you just, I'm going to ask three questions and probably have to ask them again because <laughs> that's the nature of working memory. But so what, what caused you to like want to start this series? How did you choose lesson planning, memorable teaching, motivated teaching, and developing expert teaching? And thirdly, like, why stop here? Is there, is there nothing else that teachers need to do to, to be high-impact teachers? 
<laughs> okay, so if I can remember a first question, I actually started because Stephen Lockyer, Mr. Lockyer on Twitter, I had a bet with him about how many books I could self-publish in a year. <laughs> and um, yeah, it turned out not very many. <laughs> turned out I could do four in a decade. But yeah, that's how it started. But what I quickly figured out when I was forced to think about like what book should I write was that at that time I was teaching in university and I was really struggling to help my teachers understand all of the kind of important stuff that they needed to know around lesson planning. And there just wasn't a book that existed uh, that contained all of those ideas. And so I was like, right, okay, that's the book that needs to be written. And so that pattern has kind of continued. I have written books because I felt there is a book missing in the teacher development space. Um, you know, memorable teaching was an effort to try and pull together all of like the cognitive science that we had available at that time in a kind of really you know, pithy way. M motivated teaching was uh, a response to that in that, you know, after I'd written that book, I felt there was a big piece missing around the social, emotional, cultural side of things. And then, you know, the developing expertise book is really, again, come from a sense that we haven't really crystallized, codified this stuff enough. And so trying to package it up in this, you know, get it, see it, do it, keep it, <laughs> is, is, is important. Why stop here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're baiting me, Ollie, you know, because, you know, if you, you know me well enough to know that, I uh, will we'll constantly be asking myself the same question. Let's make a bet, Pips. No, <laughs> jokes, jokes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I literally, this, you know, this morning, I was like, oh, I had this great, I'm like, I think I've, this is the next book that needs to be written, but I'm I'm holding back. I'm like, no, somebody else needs to pick up the mantle. Uh, you know, maybe I'll throw it out there. But yeah, so I'm definitely going to take a break for a while because a decade's a long time, and uh, it may not be just because that's the last of this series. It may not be the last book that Peps ever writes. Oh, that's really that. I, I thought that might be the case, Peps. That you know, it might be the last one of this series. But uh, I had a sense that. It was definitely not the last book uh, that you have in you. Reflecting on this series, one of the kind of approaches that you've taken for every book in this series, and it's kind of become your brand in many ways, is the kind of idea of hyper-concise writing. It's an approach that has a really impressive insight density, I like to call it. You know, the, the number of insights you get per, per word read is fantastic. And it's also the approach that you take in your hugely popular Evidence Snacks mailing list, which everyone should definitely check out if they haven't so, so far. And I believe you, you keep each of those emails to like 500 words or so, so you really uh, are quite disciplined in, in the way that you put those ones together. I'm curious, in terms of this hyper-concise approach, what do you feel is gained by taking a hyper-concise approach? But perhaps what I'm more interested to hear you about, hear your answer to is, what do you think is lost, if anything, in a hyper-concise book format? Yeah, so what is gained is a couple of things. I think the first is, which quite, you know, probably quite obvious, is just that teachers don't have to spend as much time to access the ideas, okay? So I get uh, you know, a lot of teachers saying, oh, I managed to read it in one sitting, you know, and recommended, recommending it to other teachers saying, oh, it doesn't take you a long time. So there's definitely a sense of value in terms of just the, the concision there. But I think the kind of other side, which maybe isn't, doesn't get picked up as much, is that 
because there is less, what is there is more memorable. <laughs> okay, so there's just kind of less fluff or less waste. And so the few words that I do include um, will hopefully stick and last longer and have more effect. Of course, there is, like you say, a kind of cost to this concision. And I kind of feel it most when I you know, read, for example, like Harry's work. So Harry's books, you know, Responsive Teaching, is a great one, is filled with lots of really strong examples, which, you know, we've talked a little bit about today, are really important in helping people to build <laughs> deep understanding. And I have kind of chosen deliberately to sacrifice the inclusion of lots of examples. And in doing so, I sacrifice a little bit of the depth of understanding that people could walk away with. And I, you know, feel to practice what I preach a little bit, which to be honest is, is uncomfortable. However, I'm kind of like content with my approach because I'm not the only person who's, who's trying to, you know, communicate some of these messages. And so that I like to think that between, you know, the multiple authors and multiple people who are trying to capture this stuff, I'm providing something that complements, that is complementary to the effort. And together with you know, these other texts, uh, teachers can get everything they need. That's a great approach, Peps. And I think one that we don't take enough in education, you know, seeing seeing the movement as kind of a whole and rather than saying, you know, what can I like what can I do or how can I do better what others have done before? Think how can I create something which actually adds adds to the corpus of knowledge and products and and resources that teachers can draw upon to to move teaching forward. So Peps, I mean, you you've highlighted uh, a very comprehensive framework. And it seems like there's a lot of different kind of ingredients that individuals or organizations need to kind of draw together to make this happen. Do you have any like recommendations in addition to your books of like additional resources, structures, frameworks, platforms or tools, anything like that, that can help people to kind of, I guess, put these ingredients together? There are a few good like complementary books. One, and probably the most comprehensive analysis of this stuff was done by Dylan William, I think in 2016. It's a book I recommended, I think last time I was on this pod called Leadership for Teacher Learning. So that is a definitely good read if you're a PD lead. Beyond that, in terms of tools, for me, you know, StepLab comes the closest to kind of being this complete set of tools and resources that can help schools to systematically build teacher expertise. <laughs> so it has no surprise that, that I've, I've written this book and I, you know, spend part of my week, you know, supporting StepLab with their work. The two align pretty closely. And so if you're a school out there who's, you know, genuinely interested in trying to put this model into action, then definitely go and check out StepLab. Cool, cool. And obviously, disclaimer, because we are both involved with Step Lab. But I haven't actually asked you, Peps, like, how did you get involved in the first place? And like, what was it that made you get involved in the first place? I was a, a tutor at Josh's school. So Josh is like the, the, this, the founder, the co-founder with his colleague, Ben, of Step Lab. I was a, like a professional tutor for their school and would go in and support all of their mentors. And I saw what Josh was trying to do right back in the early days. And he basically had a like a laminated sheet of <laughs> loads and loads of action steps stuck to the wall. 
and uh, coaches would use that to help guide their 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 instructional coaching sessions and it, it was even at that level it was pretty mind-blowing i was like oh my goodness he's like codifying effective teaching i've never seen anything before like it and yeah the, the kind of there was a real buzz around so kind of kept in touch with josh and i think helped him to develop flesh out that set of action steps with some of my earlier books so i just released memorable teaching so there's some useful like content in there to help and then a couple of years later we got to the point where at ambition uh or the uk was starting to think about these large kind of national frameworks for professional development and at ambition we won a bid to do like a pilot with the education endowment foundation we basically wanted to try and do something that was really effective we knew instructional coaching had this like groundswell of evidence behind it, but there were no kind of learning management system tools that uh, off the shelf tools that would allow us to do that. And, you know, our appetite and ambition was to do something with, you know, really significant impact. And so basically I went to Josh or we went to Josh and said, look, Josh, can we, you know, can we try something? Can we try and you know, take what you're building, uh, adapt it a little bit? And integrate it with this this you know this program we're running as a bit of a pilot and test out and see if it works. Uh, and so we did that, and yeah, had some you know really promising feedback. It was obviously a bit of a cobbled together system at, at, at that stage because it was just a, a quick kind of pilot. But there was enough promise of impact that meant that it was worth ambition forming a bit of a, like a, a a bit of a partnership with Step Lab to help build that um, instructional coaching platform that might end up supporting the early career framework in the future which it did which it did okay and so that's the kind of genesis of that that relationship and then since working with you know josh closely over time i've just become increasingly <laughs> impressed by you know not only what step lab are doing but what you know how he's thinking about teacher development and so it was yeah it was kind of inevitable that i ended up helping them a little bit more over time yeah. Okay. Awesome. Uh, that's good to hear. And if yeah, if people are keen to hear a little bit more, uh, they can jump back to episode seventy-four of the A2 podcast, and that is indeed with Josh. Peps, you've kind of talked about the book as if um, and this big series of four books that you've just finished is like you've finished the project. You're, you know, it's it's all over now. You can kind of relax. Um, you told me you had a pretty 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 relaxing weekend just before this, um, and you're having a good time. But I know. You don't really stay still, do you, Pep? You've always got something in the work. So, like, give us give us some hints. What are you What are you into now? What are you working on? What's What's in the pipeline? Yeah. So, I think for me personally, I've been really enjoying the newsletter that I set up earlier in the year called Evidence Snacks, and the idea is that I'm trying to pull together the kind of best available evidence as it emerges, uh, distill it, and wrap it all up in like a short five minute email that can help teachers to keep up to date with the evidence <laughs> as they go through their careers. So that's you know keeping me busy. I'm trying to do a good job of, and learning lots about you know, email distribution and, and writing and ideas as well. Uh, as ever, when you're forced to write about stuff, you have to end up learning lots about it. So you know a good uh, a, a good exercise for for me and you know had lots of feedback from people all around the world as well. Kind of beyond that. Very excited, of course, with some of the stuff that we're building out Step Lab at the minute. You know, we've been working really hard on refining some of the actual content, some of the steps, how they're they're phrased and how they're framed, 
and I love that kind of like geeky side of professional or teacher professional development, really ironing out the uh, the fine green detail. And then like even more widely, I'm just incredibly excited about the kind of teacher professional development landscape in the UK at least, but also I you know get a sense that there are some positive moves happening in Australia as well and more broadly around the world. And so at least I know like the kind of wider economic landscape is challenging and you know things are turbulent politically but you know from a teacher development per- perspective when you really zoom into that aspect of the world uh, i'm pretty optimistic optimistic <laughs> awesome yeah definitely heaps of great stuff going on and like zooming out peps what about the world more broadly is there anything like i know you're always trying, trying to stay stay on the current trends and things like that see what's on the horizon what what are you excited about in terms of beyond education? <laughs> well, of course, you know, AI is a really interesting development in the, the, the kind of world landscape more generally. I suspect, I'd strongly bet that there is potential there for it to have a you know, fairly positive impact on education, but it's probably going to take us longer to f- unlock that <laughs> than perhaps some people's you know, might suggest. However, to get there, I think we're going to need quite a few smart people in different organizations working on it over a period of time. Uh, I do worry that at the minute we have a situation where people are thinking, ah, somebody else is going to pick up that task. (laughs) And so if there are any AI entrepreneurs out there, I just encourage you to, you know, take the bull by the horns and and crack on and yeah, get in touch. (laughs) <laughs> if uh, you know you need any help along the way, awesome, awesome. And one other thing, like on this kind of development excitement topic, Peps, I know you're always working on personal development projects, and I know you just did this like epic race thing where you had to crawl and throw and jump and do all these other things. What are you working on in terms of personal development at the moment? Well, so Ollie, like yourself, you know, there's like a, quite a lot of facets to be worked on when it comes to uh, personal development. But I think one interesting angle on this has been my discovery of a chap called Brian Johnson recently. So Brian Johnson is an entrepreneur who made loads of money a while back and decided a few years ago that he would invest all of that money in trying to basically make himself the person who lives the longest. <laughs> okay. So he's really interested in longevity and has like a small team of scientists who spend all of their time doing tests on his body and providing him with like guidance on what he should be doing, eating, how he should be sleeping, how he should be working, everything they can possibly say to increase his like health and longevity. And he basically follows exactly what they does what they say uh, i think he spends about two million a year just on this kind of protocol and he's increasingly like sharing what he's learning w- with the world so if you go to uh, brianjohnson.com forward slash blueprint or you know search for brian johnson's blueprint you'll find his his current protocol and yes yeah, so i've been playing around with some of that uh, and that's been a really interesting experience and i suspect like going forward we'll probably hear more about him and about longevity more generally because living is a big, pretty big issue and living more healthily for longer is a pretty big issue. That's super interesting. I've just found his website now and I'll make sure I put it in the show notes. But interesting blogs like how much water should I drink? 
he's he's trying to answer these really important like questions that obviously like I assume there's an answer to it based upon like levels of activity, BMI, and so on, and fat con, you know, and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, that he's actually going to the and spending the money, which would be nice to have, but uh, he clearly does spending the money to actually invest in that and find out. That's that's fascinating. I have just subscribed as well. Yeah, his like the big push from him is that. Our body is made up of, uh, you know, quite a few different organs. I don't know, ninety-six or something like that. He argues, but that our behavior is mainly driven by one, our brain, and it's not always uh, it doesn't always have the rest of the orga- organs in its best interests, I suppose. And so, you know, all his tests try to measure organ health independently. And then he kind of like does A-B testing to find, you know, should I eat more of this or that to keep my liver happy? And he's, you know, that idea seems to be working quite well. So I think the general takeaway from me is don't let the brain drive too heavily and try to increase your kind of like sensitivity to other parts of the body. It's kind of quite an embodied, embodied perspective on things, I suppose. Yeah, cool. I like it. I mean, earlier we were talking about uh, proxies for learning and things that can be better or worse proxies for learning in relation to the feedback loop. And it's interesting you're saying now that the brain doesn't give you the best like proxies for what you should be ingesting and you should be looking to other information sources uh, for more reliable kind of guidance. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then the final thing to say on him, like proof of the pudding, I think he's got to a point where like pretty much all his organs, he's, I think he's same, same age as me, 43 or so. Uh, and I think, but most of his organs are now like the same in the same shape as an average 21 year old <laughs> and he's aging at something like for every year that a normal person ages he's aging at three quarters of a year so yeah you know i think it's like we've got some evidence to support his, some of the things that he's doing so yeah you can't you can't really uh, ignore that completely if you're interested in evidence evidence informed living yeah 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 and then he's just gotta try to avoid getting hit by a bus or something that's uh... mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's quite, well, you know, and then there's big questions around like, you know, are you prepared to sacrifice your experience now for, for that of the future? Because, you know, he goes to bed at half eight every night and uh, doesn't eat after 10.30 in the morning and doesn't drink any alcohol and all this sort of stuff. So there you go. <laughs> Fascinating. Perhaps last time you suggested three books, you su- suggested Leadership for Teacher Learning, Why Don't Students Like School by Dan Willingham. And that first one was by Dylan William, and the third one, Making Kids Cleverer by David Dydow. Do you have any suggestions now? Well, what what books would you recommend? So I'm going to, instead of giving you books that you can get now, I'm going to talk about three books to look out for in the future. Okay, if that's all right, Ollie. So the first is, uh, I'll try and talk about them in the order they're likely to be published. So the first is a book called Responsive Coaching, which, you know, Josh Goodrich, who we've already talked about, is likely to be releasing within the next 12 months or so, I'd say. And that for me is going to be like the definitive book on uh, instructional coaching, the definitive book on coaching and a great accompaniment to developing teacher expertise, my own book. The second book is, I don't know what it's called yet, but it's going to be something to do with deliberate practice for teachers. And that'll probably be released in the next yeah 12 to 18 months by Harry Fletcher Wood. And again, that'll be, you know, it's all about teacher professional development, but we'll be looking particular at, particularly at the deliberate practice side of things. And so I'm, you know, fa- can't wait to see that. I, I suspect it's going to be very good. And then the final book 
I'm not sure whether I'm allowed to talk about this yet, so <laughs> please forgive me, Chris, if if I if I can't. Um, but there's a chap called Chris Bolton in the UK who is attempting to write a more accessible version of Engelman and Carnine's theory of instruction, which is just an absolutely amazing, albeit impenetrable tomb <laughs> that was written during the 70s or 80s, I can't quite remember. And so Chris has been uh, slogging away on that, and fingers crossed that will be released at some in some point in the future. I have no idea. I have no idea when, but I would definitely be like keeping an eye out for that. Yeah, nice. Nineteen eighty-two was the Eve instruction. And yeah, I actually chatted to Chris about this the book last time I was um, in the UK. He was so excited, and I I think the cat is already out of the bag because Craig Barton's been mentioning it uh, a little bit on his podcast. So yeah, three fantastic books to look out for. Yeah, well, hopefully we. We put enough peer pressure on him <laughs> to, to, you know, get it out there. So if you hear, if you're hearing this and you know Chris, yeah, like twist his arm, get him to finish it. We all want to read it. I think one of the challenges is he's not writing just one book. I don't think. I think he's actually writing a few books. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and he's trying to bring all that together. Yeah, super exciting. Peps, any last calls to action or, or things you like listeners to go away today and do? So if you haven't signed up to Evidence Snacks, go check it out. Okay, it's. Um, good way to keep up to date with the best available evidence with regard to effective teaching. If you head over to uh, snacks.pepsmacrae.com or just search for Peps McRae snacks, evidence snacks, whatever it is, you will find it. And yeah, you can see all of like the previous snacks of the previous newsletters and you can make a decision about whether that's something that might be useful for you or some colleagues in your school or another school nearby you. Love it, Peps, and I definitely enjoy the snacks as well. They're very, very delicious, and yeah, couldn't couldn't recommend it more highly as an excellent edu newsletter for people to be on. Peps McCray, thanks so much for your time today. As always, you've provided a thoroughly, thoroughly thorough, but also thoroughly concise summary of a lot of really crucial content uh, in relation to education, and particularly today in in relation to teacher learning. I really look forward to the the new book that you come up with, whatever that might be. And I'm so curious to see if it's going to follow the same kind of concise approach or if you're going to branch out and try try something new maybe. But yeah, love, love, love the way that you communicate ideas so concisely and valuably for teachers. Uh, and thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Ollie, and have a great day, everyone. Hi, all. It's Ollie again with one more thing before you take off. And that one thing is EdThreads. Would you enjoy a short email every Friday that provides a little fun, a little mental stimulation before the weekend ahead? My free weekly newsletter is super short, easy to sign up, easy to cancel, and it's basically a half page every Friday that shares all the coolest ideas and teaching tips that I've come across that week. It's kind of like my diary for teaching and learning that you can get free access to. I often link to recent papers that have come out, tweets and Twitter threads, important reports, new books, blog articles, and even other important podcasts that have been sent to me by leaders in education, including many guests from this show, and that I've discovered from scouring the world of education. I filter these ideas and resources so that you don't have to, and I only pass on the very best ones to you. So, if that sounds like fun, if you'd like a little bit of goodness before you head off each weekend in a concise, quick-to-read format, just go to ollilevel.com forward slash subscribe to get EdThreads. Stop what you're doing and sign up before you forget. That's ollilevel.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.